I have a very clear memory of renting a VHS tape of the mouse and the motorcycle from Blockbuster when I was a kid. I was homesick for the day, probably with strep throat, and my mom and I had a little sick day tradition. On the way home from the doctor's office and then the pharmacy, we'd stop at Blockbuster to stock up on movies for me to watch until I was feeling better. We all know I had already burned through my entire Disney collection dozens of times. I found my way to so many lesser-known movies on these sick day movie rental trips, and The Mouse and the Motorcycle, released in 1987, was one of them. I don't remember this movie because it was so good or because it became a particular favorite. No, I remember it because the very 80s stop-motion conception of Ralph the Mouse totally creeped me out and still haunts me to this day. But before Ralph was a stop-motion character, he was the star of Beverly Cleary's beloved 1965 children's book, which was, of course, also called The Mouse and the Motorcycle. Ralph lives with his family in a motel and has big dreams of breaking free and proving himself capable of more grown-up adventures. When he meets a visiting boy named Keith, who also wants to be taken seriously, Ralph is less concerned with their similar ambitions and more concerned with Keith's toy motorcycle, which Ralph realizes he can actually drive. Hijinks ensue, Ralph must venture to the mysterious first floor of the motel to find an aspirin to save Keith's life, and we end up with a very sweet story about friendship and what it really means to be a hero. On episode 129, my guests and I take a broader look at mice in Kidlet, paying special attention to the differences between the mouse and the motorcycle and Stuart Little. We chat about the fun of the motel setting and how much we love Ralph. We discuss different types of fantasy books and the mouse and the motorcycle as a what-if story. We take a close look at generational trauma and racial coding as it appears subtly in the book. And for the first time in a long time, we come back to the very SSR conversation of, quote, girl books versus boy books. For week three of Manuary 2021, I am thrilled to welcome Anand Kalra to the podcast. Anand is the founding director of Uncaged Librarian Arts and Information, which produced Octavia of Earth, the docu-musical inspired by the life of sci-fi luminary Octavia E. Butler. Anand has worked in K-12 public schools, early childhood education, academic libraries, LGBT advocacy, and public health policy. Along the winding road, he has honed his knack for asking useful questions. Anand currently splits his time between artistic direction for Uncaged Librarian and consulting and coaching work in finance, operations, and information services for social justice organizations. Anand is proud to be a transgender man and an uncle to the greatest toddler in the world. Learn more about Uncaged Librarian and Octavia of Earth at www.uncagedlibrarianmusic.com and follow along on Facebook and Instagram at Uncaged Librarian. As you'll hear in a moment, Anand went above and beyond and read Stuart Little in addition to The Mouse and the Motorcycle, so he could be super ready for this conversation. And I think we can all agree that he is full of fascinating insights. As always, I would love to invite you to follow along with SSR on social media if you aren't already. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast or The SSR Podcast Community. The SSR Podcast Community is a chattier little corner of the internet, and I would love to see you there if you're a Facebook group person. After all of these months in various degrees of quarantine and isolation, our devices have become our primary link to most of the world. If you're loving what you hear on the podcast, you can use those devices to share that love with others, no matter where they are. Share this episode to your Instagram story, post a five-star rating or review on iTunes, or just go ahead and share a link to SSR via text or email. I would love to connect with even more book lovers in these unprecedented times. Fun fact, SSR is an independent pod run by a one-woman production, research, hosting, and marketing team, aka me. As a result, I really appreciate all of the support I've gotten to help me cover podcast production costs. 
you can support by shopping for SSR merch at www.ssrpodcast.com shop or by becoming part of the Patreon community. For just a few dollars every month, you can take pride in knowing that you're keeping this little independent podcast going strong. And there are cool rewards up for grabs too. You can become a patron for as little as a dollar per month, and you'll get things like bonus episodes, monthly newsletters, exclusive voice notes, invites to Patreon parties, and more in return. Learn more at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast, or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page for more details. Big shout out to each and every Patreon patron listening to this episode. I appreciate you and your contributions so much. If you want to read more audiobooks in 2021, you should absolutely explore Libro FM. Libro FM gives you the opportunity to support independent bookstores, even when shopping for the same audiobooks you buy from bigger corporations. They're the same price, too. Plus, SSR listeners can cash in on a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro FM. Go to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Happy listening. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Anand. Welcome to SSR. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So listeners, I'm going to admit what just happened. Um, so we had already started recording this podcast episode and uh, we were like maybe 20 seconds in, if that, and every item that's on my desk just fell on top of me. <laughs> so if you thought that I had it all like dialed in 120 something episodes in, I don't. Um, Anand and I just met and I just looked so professional with things <laughs> falling on top of my computer and my microphone. So any sort of like ceremony that we were standing on, I think is done and we're just going to have a good time. That's what I was hoping for anywhere. Yeah. So it's maybe it's better that everything that I own just fell on my head um, and we can just like move forward. So funny story about this week's book, which is Beverly Cleary's The Mouse and the Motorcycle. Um, for years, I was under the impression that this was my husband Matt's favorite book when he was growing up. Like when we used to have cute conversations about like, what book did you love to read when you were little? He told me more than once that it was The Mouse and the Motorcycle. And as listeners will know, last year, Matt appeared as a guest in January. I was committed mentally to reading The Mouse and the Motorcycle. I was all excited. And then he decided to take a really sharp left turn, and he chose The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. There are parallels. And it's a bold choice. I mean, he is he's not a man that generally talks about books, so he really stepped up to the plate to tackle that one. But let's just say this episode about the mouse and the motorcycle has been a year in the making, and I'm thrilled that we are finally talking about it. So thank you for choosing it. I happen to know that you've done some extra homework. You've sort of become like an expert in 
mice in Kidlet. And so I'm really excited to talk <laughs> to you about this story. I would not call myself a subject matter expert in that. I'm sure there are multiple dissertations. I'm not a subject matter expert because of, you know, if you think about like animal, animal folktales, right, are some of the oldest kinds of literature that there are. And so I was reflecting on that as I was reading Mouse on the Motorcycle. But first I read, because you gave me the option also, Stuart Little. And I had polar opposite reactions to to the different books. And it gave me some opportunity to reflect on the the different elements of, you know, anthropomorphism and like in what way is this character human versus animal? And what does that mean in the context of the book and in the context of the work that the story is doing? Well, I'll just say, so Stuart Little, uh, which, you know, I had read as a kid, or I think it was actually like one of the teachers read it out loud to us. Yeah. That book, reading it now, pissed me off. Tell me more. So I read it, I sort of skimmed it back in April. And if my mom and or anybody who's in her book club is listening, I might get in trouble for this because I sort of was asked to like join my mom's book club for a meeting and like walk them through kind of the SSR experience. Mm -hmm. And they chose Stuart Little, but it was like three days before I was moving in the middle. (laughs) I did like a pandemic move. So if I'm being totally honest, Mm -hmm. shout out to my mom's book club. I did read like five summaries of Stuart Little, but I did (laughs) not do like an in-depth reading. So I'm curious like why it made you so angry and hopefully Ralph like was a nice contrast but Ralph I guess we'll find out. Gorgeous contrast. Ralph okay. was, and, and I have to wonder how I mean so as Beverly Cleary sitting down to write this there I was I was you know doing some background research and and I think it was one in one of her bios her origin story for how she started writing kids books she was a children's librarian was that you know the kids came up to her and said where are the books about kids like us meaning like regular working class kids. And Stuart Little is this like, I'm just like furious as I'm saying it. I love when people get mad on my podcast. I live for (laughs) it. Please tell me everything. Okay. He's got, he's, he's just this like entitled, arrogant, purposeless, got all the free time in the world and all the resources in the world to just like dick around and have expensive hobbies like he knows all this boating stuff. Okay, I will say that the, like the scene in the lake where they're racing the boats was cool. I liked yeah. that scene a lot. And you know, the, the book kind of meanders and it kind of like takes the first half to kind of set up, okay, who is this and what is this scene kind of thing. And it's E.B. White being like very satirical, very tongue in cheek and like kind of sending up in some ways the New York upper class white very waspy, you know, yeah. kind of cultural environment that is not my cultural environment. And, and yet, because that has become such a dominant part of discourse in in the country, you know, that like, this is normal, right? That's what was really grating against me, was just seeing this kind of thing as this, like, well, here's like some canon white dude with plenty of money. And like, he's like, he's got this like, really awful, like, pseudo bonami thing going on with all the working class people that he encounters in the book like there's like the telephone repairman and there's the the guy who owns the the corner store kind of thing and he like he's like really rude to a bus driver at one point i'm like how dare like that is just like come on now and and then gender wise it's just this like total like white boy allowed to be immature in what seems like would developmentally be like early mid-20s kind of thing in the book like his age is really suspect because he's just like this like mouse <laughs> there's a there's a, there's a literary term for it that I don't know that I'm not going to remember about like the the kind of character who's born fully adult kind of thing oh interesting he has, he has that kind of thing going on I'll, I'll cut 
E.B. White some slack because the book comes out in 1945, which is like right at the end of the war and people have been right. going through a lot of stuff right on the heels of de- the depression and everything. And so I can, so maybe that's why there's like no real emotional conflict in it, but there's also no real emotion in it. Like he has like whimsical desires. He has umbrage, but he mm. doesn't have uh, a groundedness. All of the characters in his family are really annoying yeah, and self-interested and he's really self-interested. So I'm like, how much of this is satirical or just cynical? you know, mm. and not actually trying to critique, but just being like, this is how empty our lives are. And so we fill it with sports cars or whatever. Oh, that's so interesting. So I do, I remember picking up on some of these things, even from the like 18 summaries that mm-hmm. I read of the book. <laughs> and it's interesting because, so we read Charlotte's Web mm-hmm. for the podcast and I'll link to that episode in the show notes for this episode which is also written by E.B. White. And there's a sweetness to that book. Mm -hmm. And I haven't reread The Trumpet of the Swan in a long time, but that's the other one of his books that I remember really well from my childhood. My mom read that book to me. And I also feel like that had like a sweetness to it. So it feels like maybe Stuart Little is like a little bit of the outlier based on what you're saying. It might be. I mean, I haven't haven't reread those uh, in forever. The Trumpet of the Swan, what I remember a lot about it, is the watercress sandwiches that that swan liked watercress. Yes. In this fancy hotel. But anyway, so yeah, yeah. I I mean, I I wonder if it's an outlier. I think it's also like Stuart Little is clearly like a semi-autobiographical kind of reflection. And so there's there's some ways where there's a scene towards the end where, so the second half of the book really is, is, is Stuart on this quest to find this like bird who he's like got a crush on, right? Margolo. And it's to me just like smacked of this like, male narrative of mm. like I don't know what it is that attracts me about <laughs> her but she's it's her softness and it's her I must have her <laughs> right exactly it's this possession kind of yeah. thing and and especially in this you know very clearly gendered like Stuart stands as this like he's he's the kind of Stuart's the kind of guy who like you're at somebody's like dinner party and he's just like in the corner pontificating and I'm like I don't want to talk to him keep me away from Stuart (laughs) and so he has and so and 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 that you know fits in with his like you know oh he's logical he's male he's masculine Uh you know he's he's got this whole like rugged individualist thing about like being able to row the canoe and whatever and 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 so in contrast to this like enigmatic uh ethereal feminine qualities that he's just somehow attracted to that are like totally other to him and yeah blah, blah blah so there's that part of it. So then near the end of the book, he's like got this date with uh, someone who's his own size. And he totally, he totally like just gets self-interested and, and like mopey because it rains and the kids have messed up the boat and blah, blah, blah. And so she just like leaves and she's like, uh, I guess I'm going to leave now. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to mope about my boats. And that <laughs> part is clearly like that part is, I think, so clearly anyway, being like, oh my God, I was such an idiot when I was 21 or whatever. Yeah. And other parts of it aren't marked in that same kind of like self-recrimination. Mm-hmm. So then I got into like, okay, so let's look at developmental stages. So I looked up like Eric Erickson's stages of, of human development. And it's, it's about like, okay, so is, so Stuart's in this place of like identity versus confusion and isolation versus uh, connection or intimacy. And he fails, right? He fails that test of maturity, even as he is this kind of like, you know, little dapper little guy with his fucking cane and his, you know, little sweater vest shit and as a reminder listeners still a mouse still, still a mouse. mouse well and that's the thing so he appears in, in the whole thing he appears to be a mouse right this is really weird i even as a kid i just got so like an icky squeamish feeling in my body i'm transgender and so like 
I, you know, I got my first period when I was 11 and whatever. And I think I read the book when I was eight or nine or something, but, you know, knew about bodies and, and whatever. And it just like the idea of like a two inch long mammal with claws yeah. out of my vagina was like, oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. It's like a weird notion. And it's interesting because I think in the movie, he like just show like he's adopted. Because I'm more I'm pretty familiar with the movie because I, I watch it growing up. But yeah. they did like somebody must have been like, people are gonna not want to think about this once we get these cute kids and mice on screen. So like, how about we make him adopted? Yeah, I think it, I think it's story wise, it's certainly circumvents that. Just like- <laughs> I'm just like cringing about it. Yeah, I totally threw you off because I made you think more about how you were cringing than no, the amazing intellectual line of thought you were on. Oh, okay. Well, well, that makes okay. Sense. I'm I'm all about like embodiedness, right? I th- and I think that's one of the things that like Stuart is just this like he's 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 cerebral, right? Yeah. He's not embodied. He doesn't really have uh, emotional vulnerability. He's got bravado, and then he's got humility because he like ends up in the trash heap or whatever, right? But he doesn't have but he doesn't have real vulnerability from which he can grow. So anyway, that's my critique of Stuart Little. Well, and listeners, before you get all up in arms about <laughs> this Stuart Little conversation, I do have to tell you that there's a lot of critique out there about Stuart Little, sort of from our more contemporary sensibility. And I know because that was part of my prep for my mom's book club. So it's out there. This is not like nobody, we're not here coming for Stuart Little. This is not the first time that we have found criticism with him. It's complicated. Like so many of the books that we talk about on the podcast are. So nobody get mad, just Google it. I'm sure there's a lot out there. And I'm sure at some point I will do an episode about Stuart Little and we can really dig into this. But I think those are all really fair and really interesting critiques. And I appreciate you going the extra mile and just like learning more about mice in Kidlet. And I cannot wait to hear what you think about Ralph. So first of all, yeah. did you read The Mouse and the Motorcycle when you were a kid or was this I your did. first experience? Okay. I did. Yeah. I read it. I think I read almost all of Beverly Clary's books at some yeah. point. Although there's a ton. There's a ton. And now I, you know, because now I'm like a dog with a bone. Now I've got yeah. her two memoirs from the library sitting on my desk and I've got the second Ralph book, uh, Runaway Ralph in English and Spanish on my desk. And You're like ready. I'm so, I didn't finish, I didn't read or finish, I finished those ones, but I read Full Mouse and the Motorcycle and Halfway Through uh, Runaway Ralph right now. And it was, it was just immediate, the contrast, that, that emotional core that I kept wanting to see and not finding and then being disappointed about in Stuart Little was, I mean, the first time you meet Ralph, the, I, I think the description is, this was his first emotion. And then this was his second emotion and third emotion. It's phrased like that because he's mm-hmm. really seeing the situation. And so immediately you're like, okay, this is like, this is even though Stuart is a person who just appears to be a mouse, it's not really clear. Ralph is a mouse. Ralph, right. you know, he gets scared like a mouse. He, he curls up into a ball when he's scared. His living environment is that he lives with his family. It's a much more working class experience, yeah. which as an analog, you know, is, is, is really interesting as a contrast. And, you know, he has family who worries about him and cares about him and that he feels like, oh, I don't like my little brothers and sisters always trying to get on the motorcycle. You know, he's got, he's got emotion, which 
is anthropomorphized, of course, like he's, we're adding human things onto it, but he's, but his scaffolding is mouse. His scaffolding is he thinks about chewing through things to get, you know, as a, as a way to do things. And he's scared of the vacuum and he's, he likes kids because they drop crumbs, not because they have fancy boats in Central Park. <laughs> not because they have something to offer him in terms of social status. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not about social status. And he, you know, his arc through the book is that he has to grow up and he has to go from being, you know, self-interested and, you know, not taking, not taking responsibility for consequences to like, you know, and in the context context of his relationship with Keith, who's the boy in it, who also has a growth arc and that, you know, they, they become friends and towards the, you know, the beginning of the the third act, if you will, when and I was going to say Stuart, when Ralph has uh, he's lost the motorcycle because he had to get out of the the laundry heap and he had to chew his way through the thing, which escalates all you know the then management's on you know on alert that there are mice in the thing and people are complaining and so he's endangering his whole family and you know there's consequences there's consequences to his actions. It's not just this kind of rubber cartoon background, you know. Um, he exists within his environment um, and interacts with it which I found really beautiful. Yeah, I, I thought that just while while you're talking about the environment, like I just thought the setting of the hotel was so fantastic. Yeah. And I remember when I was a kid, I loved anything that was set in a hotel. Like <laughs> I loved stories that were set in a hotel. I have a very vivid memory. I didn't I, I didn't have like all of the Mary-Kate and Ashley mystery, <laughs> but I did have one where I think they were at like a hotel in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And that one was really cool because like all of the different guests at the hotel where the suspects and the mystery. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember, you know, when I was in elementary school and I first started writing and thought that I was good at writing mysteries, which I, I wasn't because I was seven, but I used to write mysteries set in hotels just mm-hmm. because like there you could, it's such a fun way to introduce lots of different colorful characters. Mm-hmm. And so I think that both from a character perspective and a setting perspective where mm-hmm. there's just like all of these different like sort of nooks and crannies to play in. Mm-hmm. This works so well and it's so fun for kids. And I also think that when you're a kid reader and, and you're at the point where you're reading a book like The Mouse and the Motorcycle for the first time, you may or may not have been to a hotel. Right. Or if you have, maybe you don't remember it or all that you know of it is that like you walked in, your parents checked you in, you went to bed and that was it. But this book sort of gives you like, a little bit of a behind the scenes peek of what it's like in the inner workings of the hotel. Mm-hmm. And even as an adult, I just thought it was so fun. And I, I think I picked up on different things as a grown up, sort of like the politics of the hotel and like the housekeeper's behavior and like, mm-hmm. you know, the housekeeper, whether she was going to do what she was supposed to do or not. And right. Matt, who was sort of like the guy who had been at the hotel for all these years and like knew really what was going on with the mice. Right. And I just thought it was really fun. So I love this environment. And I do think it set Ralph up with this like there were just like endless options for him Mm -hmm. yeah yeah exactly there's so much room for him to explore I mean physically in 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 the book but also just like yeah you could see how he could have so many different kinds of adventures it could be so many stories because it's a really richly detailed place with he you know he's you don't have in Stuart Little everybody's a stock character except Stuart everybody else is a stock character right Mm -hmm. but in Mouse and the Motorcycle, all of these people, even if you only see them for a little bit, you get a little bit of depth to them. And I like that it's, I really like that it's like, uh, it's an older hotel that's kind of run down now. And it's a place of last resort when, I mean, this was 
I don't know where you grew up in the in the you know kind of tech revolution, but definitely you know when I was a kid, you would if you were like on a long road journey kind of a thing, you would just stop somewhere off the highway and see who had availability, right? That's yeah. what you would do. And so in this one, like the chain motels are right off the highway. And they're all full. And so right. Keith's family comes a little bit off the beaten path to find this this older place where the carpets are real thin. And yeah, but even like the, the detail of like at the end of the book, he's got this whole journey to go downstairs and the, the ambulance and everything. And the he, it's harder for him to get under the door in the downstairs room. Oh, he's finding the aspirin. Yeah. Because the carpet is thicker in the downstairs room. You know, like just that level of detail that really makes it feel like she pays attention and she cares. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's an overall sense of caring um, that I really responded to and really appreciated. Yeah, it's been a while since I read a Beverly Cleary book, which I need to rectify. So we did Beezus and Ramona like mm-hmm. way back, mm-hmm. maybe in the first couple of months of the show. And I loved all of the Ramona books when I was growing up. And so now that I've read this book and you know I have a couple more years of this these kinds of conversations under my belts, like now I really want to dig back into the rest of her backlist and sort of look for those details because I agree with you. She is just like so stellar at looking for those details, but it doesn't feel heavy. It doesn't feel overdone. It still feels really accessible for kids. It's like, it's the right amount of detail. It's just also, it's so thoughtful. And I think it it feels very of the time. So Mm -hmm. the book was written in 1965 or was published in 1965 at least. And I just like the notion that this family, like they're from Ohio, Mm -hmm. the 4th of July weekend, they've set out on a road trip. I think in the first couple of pages, Keith, who's the boy, like his, his dad says something like, yeah, we want Keith to see this great country of yeah. ours, you know, which I, I know patriotism is a very complicated thing <laughs> and funny, and I respect that or 2021 by the time this episode drops. But there's something like so beautifully simple about this idea that this small family of three would like pack up their shit in Ohio mm-hmm. and they would just like drive around the country because their their son needed to see the country, you right. know, whatever that meant. And the, you know, all the big sites. Yeah. Right. I think that that's like, that's not something that people, I mean, certainly not now because travel is not safe, but I just, I think that this particular kind of journey that they're on is not necessarily something that a lot of families do as much as they did in the sixties and the seventies, mm. eighties, nineties. Like, mm. I just don't know that that's necessarily like the number one mode of family travel. And I thought it was really kind of cozy to read about. Like, yeah. Cozy, definitely cozy. cozy. Like this idea of nostalgia is so complicated. And <laughs> I come back to it all the time on the show because of yeah. course we don't ever want to be so reductive right. to be like, oh, it was a simpler time. So it was great. The Civil Rights Act has just passed for the first time. You know, it's like. Right. It wasn't so idyllic. So we obviously need to be careful when we're talking about nostalgia, but it is sometimes refreshing. Like as long as we can, you know, bear those things in mind and we can hone in on like, the work on the content there's something I don't know like a weird feeling takes over me and I'm like this is really quite lovely it's interesting you say that it like really feels of the time because uh the the, I'm going to show you the podcast folks won't see it but this is the version uh that I read which was re-illustrated in the 90s yeah I have the same one listeners sorry for any I'll maybe I'll include some um I'll make sure that you get a photo of this so that listeners you can you can know what we're talking the one I have of Runaway Ralph is from the original publication, and so the artwork is totally different. Oh, yeah. And it, it, it matters in a really interesting way because you could read the book as written in the 1960s 
and uh, make the default assumption that all the characters are white mm. uh, very easily. You could you could make that assumption. And yet small interventions in the artwork, um, I won't be able to find it, I don't think, flipping through, but like Ralph's mom, or not Ralph, Keith's mom is drawn as Asian. Like she's definitely Asian. Mm-hmm. And that makes a big difference. And at the in the beginning of, uh, at the end of this book, there's a little preview of the next book and you see the... Um, the kid who ends up become a, becoming a main character in the next book, Garfield, and they call him Garf, he's also drawn as Asian. And that little thing there, just like, oh, right, of course these people could be other other racial backgrounds, right? They, this this kid, this this story, this is, and this is what makes it, you know, people try and talk about like, oh, you've got to tell the universal story, which is bullshit. And yet there is a sense of like, how can you make a story that, tra- not that transcends race and class and gender, but that embodies he, uh, humanness and, and humanity in a way that, you know, people have bodies and emotions and react to things and, you know, have thoughts in interaction with their environment and other people doing things that make it feel like, oh, this is a real kind of a thing. And uh, I really appreciated that Matt, uh, who you mentioned uh, in the story, so he's this kind of like, he's this uh, older guy who's been around the hotel since its glory days. And, you know, he kind of does the maintenance on the place and he knows all the nooks and crannies and he knows the mice are there. And he's got this, you know, this magical element because he can talk to Ralph and clearly she's just so, she's just so brilliant and thoughtful uh, about the simplicity, but the intentionality of how she sets up all of the you know the magical elements is like what makes you be able to talk to ralph basically is that you have to be the kind of person who knows that the way to make a motorcycle go is to go right (laughs) (laughs) which was i didn't remember that element that that i was like how i was reading i was like how does does he make it go yeah he just makes noise i I put the book down i was like oh my god that's so perfect it's just yeah and when he drives the ambulance he just makes a siren sound yeah he just makes a move yeah (laughs) And there it is. Like, it, it's amazing. It's just so perfect because it speaks to a kid and it speaks to the kid and any adult who's ever played, you know, even if you didn't have a toy car, if you ever like played with a stick and pretended it was, a, you know, a horse buggy or whatever, right? You make a right. clop noise or something, you know? Yeah. It just speaks on that level. So I, I really appreciated that Matt was drawn in this in this book as white because yeah. it would be so easy for him to become a magical black man who holds the spirituality that's, you know, and that whole just can of worms. So I appreciated the the racial coding in the illustrations that, you know, and there's not a lot of illustrations. It's every couple of chapters, there's there's one or two that just give you, but it, it, it shapes your worldview and it shapes your construct of, of what's happening in the story. Yeah, so I appreciated the flexibility in that. And then compared to the illustrations in the, so in Runaway Ralph, I've got the, the older version of the story. And so the, I'll just show you. So this is a picture of the dog, Sam, okay. getting after Ralph and you know, it's just like Ralph doesn't have as much, not as much of him comes through. It kind of reminds me yeah. of like Quentin Blake, who illustrated okay. the role doll book. Yeah, totally. That kind of like sketching kind of thing. Yeah, because I love the illustrations in this new edition. Like yeah. I thought they were a lot of fun. I actually wanted more of them. Yeah. I was missing that. Like I, I just thought that the ones that were included were so fun. And I think I think you're touching on something with the conversation about like the fantasy element that I thought about a lot, which is that like, I so often when I think about fantasy, I'm like, oh, like wizards and, you know, mages and uh, elves, magic, the Hobbit. And I loved 
that kind of high fantasy when I was younger, but I, it's not really my genre as an adult. Although mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of awesome fantasy coming out recently, especially by BIPOC authors, which I think is awesome. But I think I have sort of lost sight of the fact that like fantasy can look like this, like fantasy mm-hmm. can look like these little bits of whimsy, these little, like you said, you know, this adult man who is the kind of person who understands that a mouse can sit on a motorcycle and make a motorcycle sound and then the motorcycle will move and then he can talk to the mouse. You know, I think it was sort of refreshing to remember that like these were the kinds of books that introduced me to the fantasy genre and Mm -hmm. that that's probably why I then so seamlessly transitioned into reading high fantasy books because now it's sort of hard for me to think about like how I would move back into reading the genre again just Mm -hmm. because my like conception of fantasy is this like high fantasy idea and so I'm like I don't know how you go from my yeah like how do I go from my like contemporary fiction comfort zone to that like I'm just not sure and then I'm like oh but there's there can be these baby steps and I feel like that's sort of why maybe what maybe that's why a lot of kids get into fantasy because there are books like this that sort of lead you down the path Mm -hmm. yeah I mean fantasy plays with that sense of what is possible and what's impossible yeah and especially when you're a kid and you're still learning how the world works and by the time you're in this you know old enough to read mouse and the motorcycle you know that mice can't actually talk but you still might have that like but what if they could you know yeah. it's, it invites you to be like it's a, this is a kind of a what if story there's a i think it's Harlan Ellison had written at some point that there's like science fiction or fantasy can you can boil it down to like three different questions. It's like, what if what if this could happen or had happened? If things keep going the way they are, then this, you know, kind of leading into the future. And I, I always forget what the third one is. But you know, you can really boil it down in this way. And so this is definitely a what if. What if mice could talk? And you read the same edition that I did. So you also read the amazing letter to readers written by Kate DiCamillo at the beginning of the book. I think I skipped it. Oh, well, <laughs> you should go back and read it, my A-plus student, because this is exactly what she's talking about. She's talking about her own experience growing up. I think um, she, her family had like a pet mouse and her family members like didn't believe that the mouse could talk. And one of the quotes that I pulled out was she wrote, I had read Beverly Cleary's book, The Mouse and the Motorcycle. And I knew that the objects and people and mice of the world were not at all as they seemed on the surface. Mm. I knew that in the right circumstances, mice could do impossible, improbable things. For instance, they could ride toy motorcycles and they could communicate with people. Mice could if they wanted to talk. And so I think that is just like kind of exactly what we're touching on here is that like these kinds of books introduce you while maybe not to the world of like high fantasy, the way that we think of it now, this sense of possibility. And that's really important when you're a kid. It makes life so much more interesting and it it allows you to ask questions that you probably wouldn't otherwise. Mm-hmm. And to be reminded of as, a, as an adult, you know, I think there's there's often, you know, this when when literature that's aimed at children has little jokes in it that are for the adults like there's there's plenty of those in here but without being sarcastic that i really appreciated oh and also i i just flipped through and i don't think i have that intro in this version oh, interesting. Like a different version oh yeah yeah well but, it's good i highly recommend if you can get your hands on this edition it's it's great and i we actually just when this episode drops we will have 
just recently released the episode about Because of Winn-Dixie by Kate Dickmillo. So I had just mm-hmm. read that book when I came across this letter to readers. And so I was excited about that little moment of SSR synergy. But yeah, I, I loved that letter. And I think it spoke to a lot of the things that I loved about this book when I was growing up. I thought that the, like, and you mentioned this earlier, this theme of like wanting more mm-hmm. and wanting to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. I thought it was handled really well and really intelligently because I think that so often like we see that all the time like how many characters in kids books are like I want to go out and see the world and I I don't say that to sound sarcastic but I do think it's it's a trope and it's a trope because a lot of kids feel that way in their real lives but I think the fact that we have two characters who are of different species Mm -hmm. who are experiencing it in the same way and Mm -hmm. who are figuring out how to have empathy for each other and how Mm -hmm. to relate to each other even though their experiences aren't exactly the same Mm -hmm. it sort of takes that theme that is relatable to kids to another level because it's like okay first of all kids you're not alone if you feel this way like this it's normal to feel this way when you're growing up you want to go out and see the world you want your parents to see you as a grown-up you want to be taken seriously you want to be given responsibilities but as an extra little note we bet that if you look around you a lot of other people and maybe mice and other animals that are in your environment feel the same way and so maybe you could have empathy for them and figure out like how to communicate about that and like maybe be a shoulder for each other to lean on and i just i thought that that was really interesting and and it's different i think than the way that that sort of theme is presented in other stories yeah i definitely hear that and the the being able to relate to each other and it's not just all about me part mm. that comes through. And that, you know, that's essentially the thing that, that makes Ralph grow up uh, in that way and be able to like, oh, okay, it's not just about, you know, growing up isn't just about more power. It's also about more responsibility and more caring. So at the end of the book, when, you know, at first he's like, oh no, if when Keith leaves, he's going to take the motorcycle and I'll be sad because I don't have the motorcycle. And then Keith gets sick and he's like, oh gosh, if if Keith leaves, he's going to stop feeding my family. And then it's like, oh gosh, Keith's sick and I care about him, whether or not he brings peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for me and my family. Um, and I'm, I got to find that aspirin for him, you know, and then he does it and he comes through and he has that moment of being proud of himself for doing the right thing, not just being exhilarated about having an adventure that is, it's really lovely. It's really lovely. Yeah. There's also this thread of, and I, I wouldn't have had this vocabulary around it as a kid but there's this sort of subtle theme of like generational trauma and I know that that's like really intense in the context of the mouse and the motorcycle but if you're an adult and you understand what generational trauma is it's actually not that hard to find because like we're introduced to Ralph's mom pretty early on in the book she worries about everything which at first is like just kind of cute because it's like oh my gosh picture this adorable little mouse woman I was with her 100% of the time because I have a niece now (laughs) Oh, so you're like, stop doing stupid things. Yeah, I was like, Ralph, don't ride the motorcycle. Right, like, at least wear a helmet, please. Don't go out during the day, it's too dangerous. Right, like, do not go to the ground floor. Please stay on the second floor. Stay away from the dogs. Don't go in the elevator. So at first it's just like, oh, like, this is kind of a cute character move. Like, I like this idea. I like the parallel between Ralph's mom and Keith's mom because Keith's mom is also always worried But as we get further into the book and we meet more members of Ralph's family, a lot of the warnings that they're giving him are tied to traumas and incidents and deaths that have occurred in his family. Loss is a big theme 
loss is a big theme. It was intense. Like he is very aware of all of the dangers that surround him. And it, it reminds you of like, you know, humans who live in these neighborhoods that their families have lived in for a long time. And they're aware of certain threats in their neighborhoods. And it's like, how do you contend with that? And that's exactly what Ralph is trying to do. He's right. like, I know that my father was killed by eating an aspirin. And I know that these other members. Do you remember what it was? Oh, he put it in his mouth. It, it absorbed. In his pouch and it dissolved too quickly. Yeah. Right. See, there's just so many threats. I can't even keep track of them yeah. all. I actually was thinking while I was prepping, I was like, I have to make sure that I remember all the bad things that happened to Ralph's family. Because yeah. there were a lot of things like, you can put an aspirin in the pouch of your mouth and it can absorb. You can eat mouse or rat poison. You can like have a run in with a vacuum cleaner. Like there are all of these things that his family members have experienced and yeah. they can't go anywhere. Like they live in this mouse hole and this is where they have no, there's nowhere else for them to go. Yeah. And so um, they just um, kind of, they have to figure it out. Right. Right. Um, unless and until you push them far enough and then you, then you'll get right into an emigration narrative and then you're like, Oh, I'm an American tale in five hole. Right. And, you know, it's really neat to see how, kind of how this definitely has influenced other animals, particularly mouse stories and where it and the trajectory it's come from. When you were talking about the, the hotel element, I was like, oh, right. Yeah. The witches. Right. That's another mouse story in a hotel. Oh, yeah. Totally different story. Right. Totally different kinds of, uh -huh. um, you know, magical elements. And, and that's a fancier hotel by the sea. And this is the rundown one off by the highway. And I'm sorry, I got too excited. You were saying something. No, no. Well, and if, if you're to your point about the immigration narrative, it's like if you do get brave enough to leave, then you're dealing with owls. Like that's exactly the right. The owl pellet, and and then there's the like, there's there's the the aunt who liked fancy things, and so she had gotten in the person's suitcase, and then they're like, we never knew what happened to her. We hope she's just like living a pampered life, but probably she's dead. You know, she's definitely <laughs> sorry, she's definitely not. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, so I thought that was, it was so heavy, like when I thought too much about it, it's yeah. sort of like looking down this other, like, rabbit hole about what is going on in this book. Yeah, why did he want adventure so badly? You know, why is he trying to get out so badly? Oh, maybe he's trying to get out from this, like, heaviness of gloom, of death and loss that all the adults in his life are constantly trying to protect him from. And he's like, you know, he's like, I'm just trying to have a normal development. I'm trying to be a, a kid, but I want yeah. to grow up but I, I don't want to be vulnerable. Maybe that's what it's about. Yeah. It was, uh, Ralph is a complicated character. I know you already started the second book in the series, listeners. Um, there are two more, so it's it's a trilogy that actually she spent almost 20 years writing. It's not like she wrote these in quick succession. I think the third one came out in 1982, so almost a full 20 years after The Mouse and the Motorcycle. But I, I do kind of want to remind myself of the rest of Ralph's character arc because he he's an interesting little guy. Did you find anything that felt problematic to you in the mouth and the motorcycle I, you know i think there's it's interesting so she's definitely writing it for you know from this boy's perspective right yeah and, and so there's little comments about like girls like this and he doesn't want to put the, yeah. the girl cousins That's in the kind mouth. of what i was wondering this is like because i had some thoughts about that too where it felt it did feel very gendered but yeah the, i mean the gender in it is very clear yeah. and it, it's and i think she's like adopting the worldview for the sake of a perspective and a standpoint i didn't necessarily see it as misogynist like i think there's a really clear scene or a really um significant scene in, in regards to this where there's uh Oh, one thing. Oh, so the the workers in the hotel, right? She 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 lets you in to know that there are there's college students who just come for the summer, and then there's the people who are like, this is their job, and they do this year in year out, high season, low season. Right. And the housekeeper who's cleaning the room, where it becomes very scary because of the vacuum. But she like she's 
there's a bus boy that she's like flirting with, right? Yeah. And and so she's like, she leaves the vacuum running so that she, so that the her boss will think she's still working. But she's like in front of the mirror and like doing her hair and like saying, you know, like saying right. things and singing and right. whatever. And she can't focus. She's like, I'm right. obsessed with this bus boy. Yeah, totally. She's like getting ready to meet him and that whole thing, which you can you can look at that in a few different ways. I think I, I think what's really clear besides the gendered element of it is that I think it's about, I think you can read it as being about, you know, this theme of power and responsibility, right? And she just like is, okay, if you really want to go psychoanalytical with it, it's like- Do it. Okay, everyone's going to hate me for this. No, they won't. They're going to The vacuum cleaner has this rug cleaning extension that yeah. he's like pushing under the bed and Ralph's like terrified and he's hiding under the bed and it, and it comes off. And then it's just this tube that is um, really kind of forcefully sucking the air out, right? And we can see this as her abdicating her responsibility um, from her literal job, but it's also like, is it about her being willing to set down her means of, of work, right? Of, of having her own self sense of purpose, even if it's a boring, shitty purpose, um, for the sake of a fantasy of a of a rescuer, or you know, this guy, this boyfriend that's gonna make everything better and take me away from this drudgery thing so there's i think there's um there's a labor element to it i think there's you know a human power element to it. i think there's a gender element to it you know and, there, and i think certainly there's a race element to it in terms of like we're only this is definitely someone who i think is coded as and 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 would be hard to read as other than white because of you know if you think about you know the ways that that labor has shifted in, in hotel and labor i used to work for a union that uh, represented hotel and restaurant workers and so thinking about you know the this is also in the, in the 60s, so this is like a family-run hotel kind of a thing and not the big corporate chain. I picture it as like a shitty version of the hotel that they go to in Dirty Dancing, if that, if that <laughs> so it's like yeah. It's all white people <laughs> who work there, yeah. um, who it's like... Right, it's like a shitty version of that. It's like, maybe it used to be like that. Yeah. It's, I picture it being run by a bunch of like white teenagers. That's, right. I, mean, I don't know if that yeah, helps point, that's how I was envisioning it. Yeah, the the summer college workers are, are that element for sure. And then, you know, but so with so with this housekeeper that I was talking about, I'm like really out on a limb here. <laughs> Elements of power and labor and I feel like I've pushed you out onto that limb. And I'm sorry. Cool. That's all right. That's okay. <laughs> As we've learned from Ralph, if you just hang on, you know, you can you can you can work your way down that and and the owl won't see you. Yeah, I'm here to help. <laughs> the sense of adventure, let me just switch tags. The sense of adventure that, that Ralph has, it feels like, you know, if you're inheriting tradition and if and if art is all conversation with every, all the artists who come before you, then it it reminds me more of Beatrix Potter, say, than Stuart Little. You know, he's kind of like, he's a little too big for his britches, and, but he, his circumstances are like animal circumstances, right? Again, versus Stuart Little, where his circumstances are human circumstances. Yeah. Well, circling back briefly to our conversation about sort of the gendered nature of yeah. the book, yeah. and this isn't necessarily in the text itself, but it was something that I was thinking about. This was definitely the last of Beverly Cleary's books that I was ever handed or that I ever mm. sought out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I read all of the Beezus and Ramona books. Mm -hmm. I read all of the quote unquote girl books mm -hmm. and listeners though, this is something that I talk about on the podcast all the time. Although I don't think it's come up in, in a few episodes, 
you know, a book that has a picture of a motorcycle on the front cover was not a book that I was necessarily drawn to as a girl that was being socialized in the 90s to like very like heteronormatively feminine things, but also it wasn't a book that any of my teachers or librarians handed to me. So I came to it because I was an obsessive reader and I knew that I liked Beverly Cleary from Ramona. And so I found it. But then when I read the book, there are all these references to like, oh, all boys love motorcycles. Like any boy would love to watch a mouse on a motorcycle. Any boy would love to play with a toy car. So I just think it's worth examining in 2020, especially as I know that there is more conversation about like the kinds of toys that we're handing kids and not necessarily being so gendered about that. I like to think that that's changed. I'm hoping that more little girls are being handed this book earlier in their reading careers than it was handed to me. But I was reflecting on that as I was reading this book because I did enjoy it so much. And I just, I think that I would have liked it just as much if it were my first Beverly Cleary as as Beezus. Like I love those books too, but I, I'm uh, I'm hopeful that it's different now than it was in the 90s and that this isn't like the last book that I would have been handed. I have good news and bad news about that. Okay. I'm so, wait, wait, I don't know which one I want first. Um, can you tell, tell me the bad news first? Okay. So the bad news is gendering with toys and things for kids has gotten super worse. Um, oh, if okay. You, if you look at, look at a Lego ad from the 80s. Okay. Um, there's this one that I'm thinking of. It's this like four or five, six year old girl wearing overalls and like she's playing with some Legos, right? Normal kind of thing. Things have gotten way more hyper gendered in marketing and advertising in just the, the development of that stuff. There is also a, a counter narrative now, of, but it's more like, look, we've got rock and roll for girls. We've got science mm. for girls versus it being a subject that everyone can do regardless of of gender and still very binary of like this is the thing that you have if you're a boy and this is the thing that you have if you're a girl and there's nothing in between and also like these are the two like there's one option for you and one option for you and that right, right. you have to pick you sort of have to pick which one you want right right and, and it says all set or all sorts of stuff about you that's the bad news okay good news time good news time this is a story that i was hoping would come up um so like when was it 10 or 11 years ago i was tutoring with uh, a group called 826 Michigan, which you may know of like 826 Valencia from San Francisco. I think it's the Dave, Dave Eggers, I think is the guy who's behind it. But like, it's this um, wonderful tutoring program. Uh, the, the whole philosophy of it is that every kid with one-on-one attention can achieve and can learn. And it, it's great. I, I really like the, the approach to it. So anyway, I was, it was an after-school drop-in kind of thing. And this uh, little girl had come and she had uh, forgotten her own book from school that she was supposed to read and like make a summary of. So we picked one off the shelf and I picked Mouse and Motorcycle. That's a fun book, right? And and I was like, let me, you know, let me widen this kid's gender, you know, expansive yeah. you know, opportunities. So she was reading out loud to me and then I was stopping and be like, okay, so what just happened? And she like, she just like couldn't, she couldn't tell me what was happening in the book. And I was like, wow, does she have like some real reading comprehension issues? What's going on here? And then I was like, are you into this book? And she was like, not really. And I was like, well, pick a book that you like. And she picked something totally different. I don't remember what that one was, but it was night and day. It was night and day that she was comprehending. She was into it. She could tell me what was happening in the book. And so there's some element of like what you're interested in. In this in this case, it had, I think, a gendered element to it. But what you're interested in is what you're going to remember and be able to pay attention to. So 
I'm glad you did find your way to Mouse and the Motorcycle. Well, I loved it. And fun fact, listeners. So while um, like my immediate family is not super into motorcycles, my extended family is. Um, my uncle is like big Harley guy. And two of my cousins, um, one of their middle names is Harley and the others is Davidson. So uh, I may have had some context for this book when I was reading it when I was a kid. But yeah, I really enjoyed it overall. I'd love to know your thoughts. Like, do you feel like this rereading experience has held up to your memory of the book as a kid? Has it disappointed you in some way? How did you kind of capture the overall reread? Mm -hmm. I I heard someone say once that there's no such thing as children's literature. What we have is folk literature. And I really appreciate that as, as a framework. So when I was reading it now, I was, I was delighted. I was delighted start to finish. And I was stressed, like the, the thriller elements of it, the stressful elements of it really had me stressed because I was really into the character because he felt so real. So reading it now. Yeah. I think, you know, the, 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 the genderness of it, um, which I think I would have picked up on as a kid too, because as a girl person, person people thought was a girl. I thought I was a girl at that point. You know, the, the little the little digs that Ralph makes, I was like, oh, come on, you're not my friend in that way. Kind yeah. of thing. Um, but also in a familiar, like, oh, but you're like one of the kids at school kind of things. Right. Not in a like, you're an oppressive Nazi kind of thing. Yeah. Well, it is, I do think to your point, yeah, I think you mentioned earlier, like it feels gendered, but it's not misogynistic. And I would agree with that. Like there was nothing sort of like, it didn't, the gendered nature of it, at least for me, and I recognize that this might not be everyone's experience, but for me, it just felt very like, and I, I hate to chalk it up this way, but I do sometimes, like it felt very of the time. It felt very reductive. It felt like this is how we think about boys and girls in 1965. It didn't feel like it was a reflection of like a patriarchal structure that was trying to hold girls and women down, which right we do see in a lot of the books that we reread for the podcast. So while it did feel, I feel like I keep using the word reductive, but while it did feel that way, it didn't feel, it it didn't upset me. I just noticed it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I noticed it. It's, I I think she was, I think it accurately reflected what uh, a boy kid, boy child, boy person, kid, boy, I get, sometimes I deconstruct too much, you know? Yeah. <laughs> would you know that's how he would think about girls that's you know and even if you know you look today at how kids play on the playground uh, there's actually a really wonderful sociology book called gender play by uh, i want to say barry thorne b-a-r-r-i-e is her first name for sure right but where she, her her study is all about how kids organize themselves on playgrounds um and, and she looks at gender it's really interesting and a lot of that is pretty consistent decade after decade so there's there's i I, I'm like, I'm hearing you say it feels of the times. And I'm like, I think it feels of the, I think we're still in a lot of those times where yeah, you know, I agree. there's definitely, you know, this is this 65 is like right as the second wave feminist movement is about to kick off. And there's going to be this whole revolution in gender politics. And yet this element, like this, this kind of normative boys are like this and girls are like this is something that has persisted. Yeah. I think, um, I think maybe what I mean more is like, I think that that's, still reflected in like real life on the playground, for example. But I do think that perhaps in some content in like literature, in movies and TV, I think we are seeing more examples of it looking more nuanced. Right. Whereas in 1965, every single piece of content that was being produced exactly reflected what was happening on the playground. And that's what we see like the motorcycle. But so it's interesting to kind of see art imitating life or life imitating art to different degrees and in different directions 
throughout the decade. I also want to echo what you said earlier about like the harrowing nature of this story. Like there were times where I was like, I don't know that Ralph's, I don't know that he can get out of this. Like, I don't. Yeah, I was like, how is he going to do it? I, mean, so it. I had to like put it down and be like, okay, you need, you need to take a break. You're getting too worked up. I was worried for him at many points in this book. So I share that experience. I'm very happy that you enjoyed this book more than you enjoyed Store Little. I'm glad <laughs> that it generally was a positive experience for you. I'm so grateful that you reread this book with me. Other than The Mouse and the Motorcycle, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? It doesn't have to be a kid's book. It can be anything that you've really been enjoying. Okay. Have you heard of the author Selena Montgomery? I've heard of her. That is the nom de plume for none other than Stacey Abrams. Oh, yes. That's how I know her name because I've been listening to all these Stacey Abrams yeah. interviews lately. And I was like, how do I know? How do I know her name? That's how. Okay. And I love, I listened to her um, talking about how, I forget what podcast it was on, maybe the Smartless podcast. And they were like, oh, so now that people know, are you going to start writing romance novels as Stacey Abrams? And she's like, no. Yeah. It's it's a different persona. It's a different persona. It's like, it's fine. (laughs) So I did uh, one of them on audio and then I took a break and did some other stuff. And now I'm doing the next one on audio. Although I, I do this thing, I get, I'll check out the book on audio and ebook or in print. Uh, from the library at the same time so that like when I'm walking or whatever I can listen to it and then like I want to go faster I can just read it <laughs> um and they're really good they're really good so they're like the ones that I've read I I, I don't know all of, how, what the scope of all of them are but the ones that I the one that I've read and the one that I'm into right now they're the first one was like murder mystery romance okay. and this one is definitely like thriller action romance oh and so she's doing really fun things with the genre. I love genre fiction. I, I, I will lead, read literary or contemporary fiction rarely. I love genre fiction because you can still get that growth and that realness and that sense of place and time um, and character within while you're still having fun and not trying to like do all of this extra cerebral work to say something new because you can have specific knowledge that's generated without it trying to be novel. Anyway, so I love genre fiction. I love... Uh, you know, sci-fi, and I, I'm, I'm not so much with the fancy, like, swords and dragons. I, I don't appreciate a sword and dragon story, but there's just so much there. So, and, you know, mystery. So I recommend these Selena Montgomery books that I've been reading right now. What else did I, oh, nonfiction, uh, Masha Gessen's new book, uh, Surviving Autocracy, really good. If you're trying to make sense of, like, what just happened for four years? Like, I need words for this. I can see that it's wrong and I can compare it to things I know, but I don't understand all of the context here. Uh, Masha Gessen's work, really excellent for that. She's just so matter of fact. She's someone who grew up in the Soviet era and is basically exiled from Russia. Now she's been targeted by the Kremlin um, and she's a columnist for the New Yorker and just has a very wonderful subject knowledge of of specific things about autocratic regimes and how they do it. And, and you know procedurally and mechanically and you know discourse wise and and she breaks it up in a really helpful way and it's all you know I, I this is started out as a fun talk about some kids books and it never ends that way though. Like the, the next auto, autocratic attempt is going to be by someone more competent so i think it doesn't hurt to keep learning so that we can be ready yeah well and as a reminder on i know this is hard to imagine because we're recording this on what december 15th Let's picture ourselves in the future the day this episode drops. Yeah. January 19th. Yeah. Things are going to be a little different. I mean, we'll still have a long way to go, yeah. but we're going to be living in a little bit of a different America. So, yeah. um, the secession talk 
will have died down. McConnell this morning, December 15th, yeah. uh, congratulated Joe Biden. Um, yeah. So he decided to let that shit go. We'll see. Well, January 19th, everyone in the future, hope future us. I hope that you're feeling good. Um, this has been such a pleasure. I really appreciate your time. I'm going to include links to all of your recommendations in the show notes for this episode, as well as a link to the mouse and the motorcycle, as well as to uncaged librarian and all of your other links, because I want our listeners to go check out everything you're doing. This was such a fantastic conversation in spite of our, our well, my uh, initial blooper with things falling on my head. Um, but thank you so it much. It wasn't for on your head. It like felt like towards you. It felt in the moment. When crisis is happening, it always feels like the sky has fallen. And that's how it felt to me. So thank you for, um, for being there with me for the ride. And uh, yeah, this was a lot of fun. So thank you for your time. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Ellie. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.